Good morning, Sarah Hapala. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. Where are you right now? Are you in Dallas? I'm in Dallas, Texas. Okay. I'm in New York City, but I'm I'm getting on an airplane today. Are you going into the hell mouth of uh, Los Angeles where there's, uh, it's like so hot? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I am flying to Los Angeles and I, I asked the Google machine, like, what's the weather going to be? It's like, oh, it'll be a hundred. I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be pretty hot, but it's a super, um, super quick trip. I'm going to be there. Um, this will probably, it's Thursday morning. We'll probably pop this out Friday morning. So if you're listening, watch the Bill Maher show tonight, uh, Friday on HBO. Uh, Matt Walsh is going to be a guest. And uh, if you listen hard enough, maybe you'll hear me heckling him from the audience. And then uh, from there, I'm heading up to Portland uh, on a story for a couple days. So, uh, and it's not going to be quite as hot, but it's it's still hot. Uh, and this the Portland story that you're doing, is it uh, related to anything you've been talking about on this show? It could, you mean, uh, the, the, uh, the murder of Rachel yeah. Abraham? Yes, yeah. it is actually. So, um, it's funny, I'm going up there with that in mind and I've spent the past couple of days, um, emailing and phone calling every single person that at one time or another, not her assailant, obviously who is in, um, who's in jail with second degree murder charges. Um, but you know, DA, judges, attorneys, um, the Portland Freedom Fund, who came up with uh, the the murderer's bail, uh, friends, ex-spouses, trying to get people to um, speak with me. And it's funny because, as you know, as a journalist, um, the story that the stories that people won't talk to you about quickly, it's there are reasons, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's kind of a little bit tough sledding. I have had some response. I'm going to be meeting with a bunch of people. Um, but those are the stories I know you just have to keep showing up because eventually, as I put on Twitter today, the story shows up too. So I'm doing that. But I'm also, um, I'm heading out there because I've got some kind of larger ideas about what I want to um, write about and talk about with Por- in, from Portland and about Portland. So I'm going to be meeting with some other people. I'm going to do a little um, foot tour of downtown, which is not in good shape. We've talked about that. Yeah. I've written about that. Um, and, uh, just yesterday, a friend of mine who used to live in Portland, he, he sent some photos. He's like, my wife cried when she saw this, they'd lived in Portland and he took a picture of this luggage store, which I don't, I'm not a collector. I don't have a lot of stuff, but I do like skincare books and luggage. I've got a bit of a luggage fetish, like smaller and smaller and smaller. Like I want to be, um, I want to like just even have a folding toothbrush, right? Everything should be small. So we used to go to this one luggage store because they really had cool stuff. Well, it looks like it's in Fallujah now. It's just all, you know, Mm. covered up. And, and so I want to do a little walking tour with this girl, a photographer who, um, she and I worked the protest together and kind of go to the places where very recently, I used to go and used to be um, among the living, and uh, maybe do a little photo essay about that. So I got a, I got a bunch of Portland ideas. So yeah, that's that's, that's great. That's great. Yeah, that's where I'm heading. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, I have been otherwise occupied this morning. You told me there's some uh, some drama on the Twitter machines. What's- oh, I don't know if it's drama, but it's it's Queen Elizabeth. So she, mm. you know, she's been sort of failing. Um, though there was an interest, there was a nice picture of her greeting the new prime minister, Liz Truss, the other day. And she looked, you know, the queen always looks lovely and put together. She's quite small and, and shrunken now. And of course, she lost her husband 
who was also quite aged, I don't know, a year ago, a little longer, Prince Philip. Um, But she's, she's, they are calling it under medical supervision. And someone had wrote, written um, that, uh, that Prince Charles and um, uh, Prince uh, William were going to her bedside. So, you know, we are Americans. We do not have the same sort of, or most of us do not have that same sort of connection to royalty or the feeling. But I can tell you, I've had British friends who are, you know, they call her our dear queen. Um, she's mm. very, very important. And um, whatever you think of, you know, the history of England or of the crown or of the drama that's been going on, she's just a major, major person from the 20th century. So we may, I mean, I, I hope she doesn't leave, but she is something like 92 sure. or 96. She's 96. I just looked it up. Oh, okay. 96 years okay. old. So I'm not, She's you lived know, a long life. Yeah. And presided lived, over an enormous amount of history and cultural change over in the, in Britain. Yeah. I mean, the, the you know, the 20th century, century was a very, very active century <laughs> yeah. for, um, for Britain and the United States. Anyway, um, I'm just, you know, I just, I just, there are people that are, that are thinking about her today, which is, which is good. So that's, that's something that's happening today. I have a question for you. Yes. Who is your first celebrity crush? You know, we had the open thread yesterday and I didn't chime in. I was trying to think about that. So I think it was actually someone that practically no one is going to remember named Mark Lester. Never heard of him. Mark Lester starred in a movie called Oliver. And I actually think the Oliver musical? was- It was a movie musical. Yes. Okay. And Jack Wilde was in it. Jack Wilde, who went on to star in H.R. Uh, Puffin Stuff, which was a, a cartoon, a kind of live action Saturday cartoon, which is just- Totally so remember H.R. Puffin Stuff. Totally I mean, remember it's that. it's just 70s through the kazoo. Um, uh, anyway, I don't know how old I was when the movie was kind of very young, but I remember- just thinking he was so cute. Now, there is something interesting about Mark Lester that brings him into the current day. I have absolutely no idea what he did with his life. If he became a... Well, he trained as an osteopath specializing in sports injuries. I can tell you off the top of my head. Well, but isn't it also the case that people claim Michael Jackson's biological children or Mark Lester's children. Look that up. What? Yeah, right. <laughs> Boy, this this went from zero to 60 pretty quickly. I <sighs> think I recall that being the case. So, uh, look at something. Wow, you're, Mark you're Lester, Michael Jackson's daughter. He was a close friend of Michael Jackson and godfather mm-hmm. to Jackson's three children. Mm-hmm. In 2009, Lester gave an interview to the British tabloid newspaper News of the World in which he claimed that he could be the biological father of Paris, the late singer's daughter. I have to say they look alike. There's a certain, uh, the nose. Um, Anyway, so that was, that's weird. Wow. I didn't, I didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> and by the way, I'm looking at little pictures of um, uh, pictures of of little Mark Lester starring, um, having the starring role in Oliver as this adorable little urchin. Oh, yeah. um, little really cute. Puppet. Yeah, you got yeah. started early. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I was I'm little. Um, yeah, I just remember thinking he was very cute. So mm-hmm. I guess that was it. But you know, I was even, how old? Six? I don't know. Is that even like really count as a crush? You know? So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think, think it does. Yeah. Okay. So we so we had an open thread about people's uh, first celebrity crushes, which was really fun. We got a, a vast collection of those over there. One thing I noticed was that it was a lot more women participating in the thread, whether their crushes were male or female. And I wonder, do you think that celebrity crushes are uniquely more female? Is that something that girls experience that yes. guys don't experience? I do. I do. I mean, I think guys do, but... This is, of course, a vast generalization. And of course, we specialize have, in broad generalizations right. over here about men and women. The name of the show to vast generalizations. But at least back in the day, we're talking, you know, 70s and 80s before we were like staring at our phones all the time or, or doing video games. Guys, boys tend to like congregate and do like sports and build things and run around They're They're doing like active things. Girls are more, they, they congregate in groups and they talk and they do, they do things that are more, I don't know, they're, they're not as active and outside of the house, let's say. So, I mean, everybody was watching TV and looking at movies, but I think that, you know, those crush magazines, what were they called? A uh, tiger beat. And, tiger um, beat, bop. Uh, boys yeah. were not. I, no, I, I mean we were very targeted. Women, you know, yeah. we, were, we were very groomed, as they like to say, to uh, to fall into the celebrity crushes. Um, but I fell right into that trap. I mean, it's really interesting to me because, like, I can look back on my childhood and I, or, or adolescence particularly, and I see it as almost like a carbon dating system of you know the <laughs> celebrities over time. Absolutely. You know, I I said in the thread that my first real intense celebrity crush was the bassist of Duran Duran, John Taylor. Um, that was fifth grade and then sixth grade we have uh rob lowe and then seventh grade is river phoenix and then eighth grade is michael hutchins of nxs and then ninth grade is keanu reeves i can just kind of keep going with it you know there was just sort of like like almost like fashion brands that came in and out of style there were people that just absolutely consumed my 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 imagination and fantasy world and uh yeah i don't, I don't know if that's unique I don't know if I was uniquely hooked by that particular bug, but I mean, I'm just telling you, celebrity crushes sort of like consumed my adolescence. I I don't remember having a lot of celebrity crushes. I can tell you in terms of the carbon dating, since I'm older than you are, the the cover of Tiger, Tiger Beat. And I know there were other ones. That's the only one I remember the name of. And by the way- Teen Beat, we, Tiger Beat, and Bop I, were yes, the ones Bop that, was, I was already older. Like I was not- yeah, it's maybe I was already- doing other things. But um, <clears throat> we do, we have mentioned, I think here on the show before that Nick Gillespie used to be an editor at Tiger Beat, Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine, yeah, which just makes all the sense of the world. But when I was coming up, the um, the people on the covers of the magazines were David Cassidy and um, someone named Bobby Sherman. I don't know what Bobby Sherman ever did, but he definitely looked like a man to me when I was a kid. I was like, what is this man doing on the cover? Whereas David Cassidy's like, he still kind of looked like a, you know, a girly boy with the hair and all that. But think about it, like, how often did they have girls on the cover of Tiger Beat for boys to look at? It wasn't. It was for young girls or to, to buy or maybe gay boys. I don't know. You were no, the only women I The only women I remember being in those magazines were Madonna because she was just absolutely everywhere back in the day, you know? So everybody yeah. wanted to know 
know about Madonna. This is the mid eighties. And the other one weirdly was Alyssa Milano. And she was kind of like the original, like cool girl that hung out with the guys. She was always with the two Corey's, uh, Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. And she was kind of a mystery to me, but uh, among other things. And, uh, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, like, like the, the, the only girls that were in there were the ones that were like cool enough to hang out with the guys, which of course imprinted this idea that like, that's who I should be. I mean, there's all sorts of like, like socialization going on with those magazines, which by the way, I was always ashamed to be reading. Like even when I was in sixth grade, I was like hiding this from people. I didn't want people to know that I had, that I bought these magazines. I knew enough to know this was shameful, but I had to do it anyway. It was kind of like my porn. I think I was buying those magazines at the same time I was buying Archie comics. So it's like fourth grade. There was a little store on the corner, and that's where we yeah. used to buy it. Um, I was going to say something about, oh, when you're saying like the, the girl that was cool that hung out with the guys. Have you ever heard this phrase, a, a pick me girl? Mm, that's, um, I've heard that in terms of like, uh, like disparaging comments about somebody, like, oh, she's a pick me girl. Yeah, oh, kind of like oh. younger slang for like somebody who's sort of thirsty. Is, am I right? Well, I heard it from a 13 year old who, it basically was saying it's sort of like the girl that I'll just give an example. Like she wants to look cool. She wants the guys to think she's cool. So yeah, like I want to watch sports too. Like pick me. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting series. And I first heard it as pick me. I was like a pick me. What's a pick me? But it was a pick me. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, I think it's another way to talk about that kind of cool girl phenomenon of being, of being the girl that's kind of like down with all guy things. Um, Speaking of that, I'm loving all my forays into baseball. Because <laughs> you're a pick-me girl. Yeah, that's right. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to make the guys think I'm cool. I'm not, I know. I'm not sure it's working, but you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put nose to the grindstone and we'll, we'll get there. I'll report back. So um, we had a few interesting things to talk about this week. I've been a little bit out of pocket with work and, and family stuff, but you, um, you kind of uh, gave me the lowdown on an interesting story and then said something I thought was incredibly interesting. So why don't you bring us into the, um, into the, uh, Oh, into the dark world of Spitgate and don't worry, (laughs) darling. Yeah. And the, absolutely. (laughs) Here we are. Oh boy! Yes. A, Do you, you think better... that if Mark Lester spit on John Taylor of Duran Duran, that that video would go viral? I, I, no. I, I, first of all, I I can't believe I actually saw this video because I have not been paying attention to this. Don't worry, darling, at all, except to send you the trailer two months ago, saying, "What is this magical thing that looks like a combination of the Stepford Wives and Mad Men?" And yeah. you're like, we we're both like, "Oh my god, we got to see this." have really not paid any attention. And then, because I have been haven't really been around. But anyway, I see this video and it's like slowed down. Is Harry Styles spitting? And I'm like, what? Yes, like, this was like the Sapruder film that people were <laughs> uh, dissecting over the weekend. And, you know, this is going to come out on Friday. And I wonder, like, the, the, the speed of internet churn is such that by tomorrow, this may just seem like a fever dream that we all had. And everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're talking about Don't Worry, Darling. But it really did take over the internet uh, over the weekend. If you were online, this was impossible to miss. Um, and it was kind of like, like... This 
this story ended up being sort of like the Avengers of celebrity gossip. Like every single character had like their own story. So, um, so if, if you will indulge me, I'll take you through it just a little bit. And I apologize to anyone for whom this is, you know, either, uh, you know, nonsense, which it certainly is, um, or old, old hat, but you know, this story kind of, kind of, um, electrified the public over the weekend. So it's worth taking a little bit of a look at it. I'm just going to interrupt you for one second for everybody's like, Oh, this is like fluffy. There's actually, I think a very interesting point when we get after talking about sort of the wallpaper and the lay of the land here that leads into another story. So let's still stick with us guys. It, it, it's yeah. it's going to have a off. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things where I think it's really tempting and I would not blame anyone for being like, oh my God, why is anybody talking about this? And um, I guess I come from the world where I find that if everyone is talking about this, there's probably something interesting going on. Um, so anyway, that's that's where my mind is. And and I, I found this, look, it was really hard to get not to get sucked into this drama. Uh, I think in part because I think we're yearning so much for escape and a collective experience, which I'll talk about later. Um, okay, as you've already discussed, Don't Worry Darling is, it's a movie that's coming out on September 23rd. Uh, it's a movie that's, uh, it's about an unhappy 50s housewife. Um, it's it's directed by Olivia Wilde uh, and it's been beset by gossip for a little while. So this is the movie where Olivia Wilde started dating uh, Harry Styles, pop superstar, and she was married to Jason Sudeikis, uh, beloved actor of Ted time? Lasso. Was At she the married? Time, at- yes, oh. she was married in the beginning. Um, She hired Harry Styles and then there were rumors about them dating. And then of course we started to see pictures of them uh, holding hands, et cetera. This became a big gossip item. Harry Styles is probably the biggest pop star. I don't know in the country, at least, if not in the world uh, right now. And uh, you know, one of the early uh, controversies around this was that, uh, Olivia Wilde was served custody papers at an event promoting the film last April, which was a really wild moment. You know, um, I don't know. Did you see that? I, you know what? I weirdly, I did. Um, I don't know why. And, you know, she kind of, she's standing at a dais, dais, however you say that word. And, you know, somebody brings her something and she looks at it and kind of, you know, collects herself and just keeps going if, if that's my recollection. But, you know, anybody that understands about like, getting papers served or being served papers, this is like a really, really big deal. And to do it publicly like that is, that's super aggressive. Oh my God. I thought it was, you know, incredibly aggressive. And I also thought she handled it like an incredible pro. Incredible. She just Um, kind of like took his beat and kept going. Yeah, like unbelievable. Um, Jason Sudeikis said he had no idea they were going to do that. Olivia Wilde said, "Uh, yeah, I don't think so. There's a reason why. I'm sorry. There's a reason that. why I left this marriage. <laughs> um, I don't believe that at all. There's no yeah. way he, he there, no, absolutely not. The, the, that, or, or, or he's got some psychotic paper server then, or maybe, or, sorry to go a little dogleg here, or he's got some sort of attorney that's looking for some sunshine for him or herself. Like, oh, I'll pull this incredible move. It'll be all starry. My name will be, I mean, who knows, but that's a, it's a bad, it's a low move. It's a low move. <laughs> 
the star of this film is a is a kind of uh, hot shot young actress named Florence Pugh. I didn't actually know her. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar for her role in Little Women, and she was in a horror film in 2019 called Midsummer. Um, but mm. you know, she's a she's a beloved young actress, really beautiful. And there's rumors that you know, like it comes out on page six that she's not very happy about. Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde dating while she's doing the movie. There's rumors that she doesn't get as paid as much as Styles, which Olivia Wilde says isn't true. And, um, you know, she discusses that maybe she's a little upset about how much attention there's being paid to like sort of sex in the promotion of this film. Uh, the trailer has Harry Styles going down on her, which of course becomes like internet fodder for days because Harry Styles has a million fans. Um, so, uh, you know, which the other... Maybe- which is maybe why they're promoting it a lot. Because it's funny, you know, people want movie to have pre-release heat. So, you know, that's kind of how, I mean, I don't know Florence Pugh, I don't know the movie yet, but like to kind of complain that they're using it, making like super hot publicity, what are they supposed to do? Make boring publicity? Right. Well, and one of the things that Olivia Wilde has done in the promotion of this film is to talk about how the movie is really about female desire, which is such a hot topic these days. And there's been a lot of criticism about how, you know, movies center male desire. This is, you know, one of the talking points she had is that none of the men come in this film. It's only the women, which, okay, that's not actually my ideal of a of a uh, (laughs) great world either. Um, But okay, fair enough. Um, so anyway, one of the other controversies before we get to the, the everything that happened over the weekend is that Olivia Wilde gives an interview um, to Variety magazine. She talks about the fact that Shia LaBeouf was originally cast in this film in the role that Harry Styles played. Uh, Shia LaBeouf is a is a character is an actor that has had a kind of troubled reputation. After he left this film, he was. Uh, charged with sexual battery by his ex, FKA Twigs, who is a pop star in Britain. Um, so there's like certain incentive to distance herself from Shia LaBeouf. In this interview, she says, you know, I, I asked him to leave the film because I wanted a safe space for our actors or something to this extent. Well, Shia LaBeouf comes out of hiding and says, you know, actually, you asked me to stay on the film. I've got the the text messages and the voicemails and you hear her asking him like, Hey, can you please stay on, you know? And, and she has this line which says, you know, obviously he and, and the star Florence Pugh were, were not getting along. And she says, you know, come back. I think this might be a bit of a wake up call for Miss Flo. And this little term calling the actress Miss Flo uh, seems to set off a contagion of kind of, you know, speculation. Like it, it sounds kind of condescending. And sure enough, shortly after that, Florence Pugh announces that even even though the film is debuting at Venice Film Festival, she's not going to be appearing at the press conference. So this is all the sort of like stuff that's swirling around this film before it debuts over the weekend. Um, basically, you have like you have a, a you know charges of nepotism or favoritism. Uh, this kind of juicy thing with the director dating the star. You've got a lead actress that may or may not be behaving kind of like a bit of a 
entitled diva. It's unclear like whether or not she's justified here or not. You've got a director that's sort of like making claims of certain kinds of feminism. And then it turns out that maybe that's not the case. So anyway, that's what we have going into this. And then at the Venice Film Festival, we basically have a series of viral memes over the weekend. I mean, this movie just continues to generate uh, one storyline after the other. Uh, The first thing that I started to notice was that there were all these pictures of Chris Pine in my timeline. He's at the Junket Conference, um, and he's just sort of zoning out. And everybody was kind of like goofing on this. You know, like there's jokes that this is Chris Pine astral projecting. He's kind of (laughs) staring into the void um you know and you can understand why I did like you and I have been part of these junket conferences they're incredibly yeah. boring um there's this great video of uh like Harry Styles outside the frame kind of doing this like word salad about like my favorite thing about the movie is that it really feels like a movie you know and then Chris Pine's kind of like you know it's that whole like you know hello darkness my old friend <laughs> Um, and, and so everybody's kind of goofing on this and we should um, say Chris Pine is in the movie too, by the way, yeah, he's not Chris hanging Pine. around he's, he's- randomly i mean you know like oh, one, of, one of the the strange things about this movie is that you know you keep learning like other people are involved in it like there's this this viral moment where harry styles kisses nick kroll and i'm like why did he do that oh nick kroll is in this movie okay <laughs> wow or this is just keeps building um but you know all of this sneaks up on us i saw something on twitter that somebody had said i just realized the random hollywood lesbian that's been all over my timeline is in fact chris pine <laughs> is here um, his hair is doing some pretty crazy stuff. I well, have. he has this like <laughs> little flip. blonde bob. With uh, a flip at the bottom like Dara's day. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so and then meanwhile, you know, Florence Pugh is saying that um, you know, she's she can't appear there because she's she's uh filming Dune, but then she posts something on Instagram that that's her traipsing around Venice sipping this a- Aperol spritzer in this fabulous purple outfit. I mean, it just it like everyone is just kind of metabolizing these little storylines as they come along and entertaining and it's building. But the big moment is that someone catches a little moment of video where it seems as though Harry Styles has spit on Chris Pine's hands as he goes to sit down. And that's like, it's like an honor. Like I'm honoring you, right? Like you. I don't, I think there were a million, there were like a million, you know, is, are, are they mad at each other? Is this an aggressive move? Is this some kind of like, what is going on? And then basically like what we see is that the internet writes fan fiction for the next 24 hours, you know? Um, I mean, if you just saw, I saw that if, if nobody said anything about spitting, if I saw that, I would not, I would not even notice that he was apparently like spitting. He's like kind of moving and sitting down in his seat. Like you don't see like a anything. I I mean, I didn't. I didn't watch it repeatedly. It was slowed down. I I mean, you could it could kind of look like that. Quick question, Sarah. What is the possibility that all of this drama right. is somehow being deliberately choreographed in order to kind of thrum up interest in the film. Now, I'm not saying every bit of it, things will kind of escape and and create their own lives. But how much of this is like, okay, let's just do this, guys, because, you know, 
it's going to be good for the film. Well, I mean, I think at some point you have to lean into this, right? I, I, I have to think that Olivia Wilde is there sort of quietly sinking in her heart because her movie, which she spent a year of her life making, at least, you know, is being eclipsed by this drama that has now... Con- I mean, I haven't seen people talk about a movie like this. But that's kind I, of I can't remember. It? Yes, of course. Well, all publicity is, is good yeah. publicity, right? Um, but it... It's hard, you know, but meanwhile, the movie, which it actually did, like, by the way, there's a movie at the center of this. Like, there's a movie at the center of this movie that we've created online. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not getting very good reviews. It has 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but it's not out yet. So so who's seen it? Well, the, the critics at Venice. So it oh, premiered. Okay. Okay. So all of this happened because it was around the premiere of Venice. I mean, it's also fascinating that this festival, which I only used to know about in the, in you know, I would say like as of like 10 years ago, because critics that I knew would go there, see these early films and like nobody else was paying attention to Venice Film Festival. And now suddenly I'm seeing it all over um, in part because, you know, this is just the the way that social media has changed the way that we consume entertainment. Um, You know, one of the things that was really interesting to me about this story was that, you know, back in the day, gossip tabloids used to create these narratives. Um, And this is a moment where the, the gossip is being created by us. I mean, this is something where we are generating these stories and the newspapers are following the kind of collective zeitgeist um, that's that's making these stories. You mentioned later, um, you mentioned earlier <laughs> that um, you didn't see Harry Styles. It didn't seem like he was spitting on Chris Pine. No, it doesn't. You can't really see it. Here's the thing. This is one of these stories where it's like we want to believe. There is so much. I really think. And this is coming on the heels of that Depp Heard drama. And I just really, which was another one that was just really user generated. I mean, this was something that the, the, the tabloids were just left in the dust over this because the whole drama was being generated by people on TikTok. And, you know, I think there is this collective longing for an experience that we can all share. And think about it, you know, this is not a partisan story. For once, this is not political drama. It's not going to split your audience. You can talk about it with the random person, um, you know, that you you meet at Pilates class or, you know, your, your, whoever it is in your, in your timeline. Nobody's really, I didn't see anybody arguing about this. I mean, other than people saying, who the hell cares? But even those people <laughs> got beat down by it. Even the people that were like, who cares? Were eventually like, okay, wait a minute. Wait, who, who spit on who? So you're talking about like the celebrity magazines. Like, let's go back even to like our parents or grandparents' time, right? You were like, you know, Elizabeth Taylor was on the cover or, you know, whoever, Lawrence Olivier, I don't know who was like, the stars, they were so incredibly untouchable. Like they were, they literally lived in some celestial world and you were like down on the farm in Kansas or someplace in Queens, right? Mm -hmm. So, but you still, it was movies were escapism and these people were always beautiful and their lipstick was perfect. And, you know, they had these great bullet bras. It was just like this Mm -hmm. thing that you could just observe, but you couldn't really 
interface with it except to go to the movies or read the magazine. Well, now all of a sudden, you kind of feel like you can. You're actually like talking about it and you might even, who knows, you might even get a, a ping back from one of the stars or whatever. You feel like you're more involved, right? And that is where we spend our time. Um, but it's funny, what creates this need, right? What is the need? I, I think I was talking, was I talking to you yesterday about the word community? Was I, was mm, I talking to you about no, that? No, I don't um, think so. Okay, so I, oh, so no, you were because we were talking about how poor, you moved to Portland right. and people kept using the word community. Right. I got to Portland in 2004 and like within the year, I was like, what is it with like every person is like community, community, community. We're going to create community. We're going to have this community. And I was like, I had never heard, I mean, I'd heard the word community, of course, but I'd never heard it used all the time with people sort of wanting to have these communal experiences. Well, you know, that's a whole other political hot potato that we can get into later. But I think people are trying to create community and they're doing it around mm -hmm. a deaf herd or they're doing it around uh, Olivia Wilde. And, you know, it used to be maybe they were doing other things, right? They were I don't know, they were going to church or they were, you know, playing golf or whatever. And, you know, of course people still do, but this is where they're trying to find some, sure, it's entertainment, sure, it can be fluffy, but obviously you would think that they're trying to find some sort of, I don't know, good feeling, soul satisfaction, something. But like you said, when you open this, the churn is so quick that by tomorrow you're on to something else, which is... I don't know. It seems kind of superficial, but sorry. I don't know well, why I just went on that I, I mean, you know, look, I think that we have, I think that we have a primal need for gossip, you know, like I think that there is, there is, there's science behind this. Uh, that back in the, you know, the campfire days, we used to sit around and like, you know, you needed to know if somebody was being eaten by the tiger or something like that. No, we need stories. I've said this before. I read a quote that I wish I could find. I read it years and years ago that people will voluntarily go longer without food than they will not telling and hearing stories. We we do need those. We we absolutely need those. So And as culture has shifted, you know, that shifted to television, which was the the sort of campfire experience of our culture for a long time, then, you know, I, I always thought reality television served this great need for gossip, you know, because you could talk about the people on reality television in a way that you could talk about people, couldn't talk about people in your friend circle with kind of like such disdain and, right. and uh, right. you know, you, you could kind of judge them in a way, you know, and, and it gave this, um, it sort of felt like low stakes gossip, which, you know, and now of course the campfire has moved to social media. And now there are these stories that are being generated um, that we're participating in because, you know, it's like we don't want to go without water. And one of the things I noticed in my timeline was just how many people were were saying, like, thank you, cast members of Don't Worry, Darling. Like, we all needed this. Um, you know, this has been yep. a tough few years. And, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that this has been kind of probably a bit of a nightmare for the people involved. But I have to say, if celebrity has a purpose, right? Like one of its purposes is to sort of take us outside of ourselves. Um, this is one of those that did that. It took us outside of ourselves and it brought people together. I, I have to agree that the the trailer for this movie, of course, we're going to link it in the show notes, was for me just super catnip. I mean, it was sexy. It had velocity. It was juicy and a little bit mysterious. I think you're absolutely right. It was like, I want to see this movie. And how often do you say that? 
I, mm, I don't. I, I don't rarely say that. that. Yeah. When yeah. I, I mean, I was like really riveted by this trailer when I first saw it. Yeah. Um, so well, I will see this movie on September 23rd, by the way. I will I will uh, plunk my money down for the 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I think a lot of people probably will, too. Um, you, let me ask you a question. Do you think... Do you think Olivia Wilde is getting a hard... Is getting particularly scrutinized because she's a woman? And otherwise... In other words, do you think people would care if she were a guy and she were dating the 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 actress in the film and maybe she like you know pulled some wool over people's eyes about why she let somebody go on this on the set i think it makes it a little sexier that she's a woman first of all she's a beautiful yeah she's woman. a beautiful I, woman she's, she's gorgeous she's i don't know how old she is 40 she's you know it's pretty pretty prime and she's dating styles who's i think about 10 years younger than mm-hmm. she is yeah and she's uh she's kind of strutting through life I think she's an interesting character and she's got a lot of she's got a lot of incandescence of her own. She, you know, it's no it's no mo- small shake to get a I don't know how much the movie cost. 120 million dollars. It would actually stuff. it was only I think it was only 20 million dollars actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it looks really? amazing, but yeah. What? Wow. Well, but still, but still, you know, when you make a movie, my daughter's working on a movie right now and and it's just, you know, it's every movie is beset with with issues and, you know, you got to get, you know, hundreds of people to pull in the same direction at the same time. And she got this accomplished. And um, during a hard time, I'm assuming it was mostly made and created during the pandemic. Yes. I think, I think she's a, I think it's kind of interesting. And yeah, um, I, I think that's actually a really good point that it absolutely raises the profile. You know, we know that there haven't been a ton of female directors. This is someone who is, uh, is changing the the rules on that as well as dating a younger man. Yeah, she's 38 and he's 28. Yeah. Um, although there are uh, now rumors that they're not dating anymore. Of course, there's rumors about everything. I wouldn't... Uh... Yeah, I find him... Uh, I've always found him interesting. And uh, I, I love I, his... I, honestly, I'm well, my, a low-key Harry Styles stan. I, I don't know his new stuff, but I, I'm sorry. I already know what outro song we're, we're going to put in here because it is... I, I hate to admit this. It is a video I've watched like 20 times. I also think the song is super, super fun, but you will you guys will just see it uh, when we post the episode. It's it's a done deal. Um, yeah, I think I, I wanted to see the movie, and I just don't say that about many movies at all. So... So we this is, you know, the, we we uh, we're in a tough place as a culture. Um, this is a story that we used as kindling to kind of burn the fire over the over the weekend and keep ourselves warm. And uh, you know, for better or worse, here we are. I will say these are. It'll be interesting to see whether or not this this movie does well or not. I have to say, when I when I look at these things, I sometimes wonder. Like Hollywood feels like, in some ways, the carcass that we're using to create the entertainment that we want more than the actual film. You know, like uh, yeah. Well, yeah, you can spend longer with it, right? I mean, how long is the well, film? Everybody can participate, and it's free. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, so you've got this twenty million dollar film on one one hand, and then you've got like free TikTok and viral videos on the other hand. It's this, this feeling when I go to TikTok, you know, and I just think it's so uniquely addictive, um, and really, it always makes me wonder, like, how long are we going to keep making those giant movies when well, all of this stuff is free? But yeah, uh, yeah. Well, 
we w- uh, up at my mom's. My mom lives in upstate New York, and she used to really love going to the movies. And we pass a multiplex all the time, like just, you know, when we're doing errands and stuff. And she's like, oh, what's playing? I'm like, mom, don't worry. You would never have heard of any of them. Like, they're mm-hmm. not, the movies that are that are playing in the multiplex now are not, I mean, we're going to get this one. But a lot of it, it's like, you know, it's Thor, which I think is great. But like, it, they're not God, I do not these- care about superhero movies. I know that's kind of dismissive to an entire genre, and I don't mean to be genre essentialist, but I do not really see those movies. And uh, yeah, I'm much more in the Don't Worry Darling camp. Um, but you have not, did you see Thor Ragnarok? No, I didn't. I didn't see any of okay. them. Okay, so Sarah. Try, okay, okay, and, okay, and please, okay. I'll watch. Listeners, please chime in with me, Sarah. The next time you're in like kind of a crummy mood or you just kind of feel like you need a lift, put on Thor Ragnarok. Okay. I, I promise you. It, it's, I, I, I absolutely love this movie. And I wanted to say something about TikTok. So I have not, I do not have TikTok. I don't have my phone. I never watch it. Obviously, I say links to different TikToks, but I now have a TikTok addiction. I check this guy every day and actually, and I put him on my, my Twitter and then we've been communicating there. I love him so much. And it's called Chef Reactions. TikTok. Mm. So everybody go check out Chef Reactions. I I love this guy so much. And if you miss Anthony Bourdain, he, this dude's here for you. He is so funny and it's great. And the, the clips are like two minutes long and it's just, fan, they're fantastic. So that's my uh, that's my recommendation. I guess I should have saved that for the hot box, but there you go. Oh, okay. well, why don't we just do the hot box right now? Since oh we're, my since goodness. We're okay. okay so can I say one thing before we box. get, can I say one thing before we get to yeah. hot box? Because yeah. it was related. It just reminds me that there was a headline this week that Cineworld that owns Regal Cinema just filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy. You know, the, yeah. the multiplexes are, are, I mean, it doesn't mean it's going out of business, but it is restructuring and they're going to, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's, they're on their way out, right? You can't, you can't bring it back. It's funny. You know, I think when we were kids or even young adults, if someone said, listen, gosh, you know, 10 years from now, you're not going to be going to the movies anymore. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Well, you don't. Like, even when I want to watch something, like I like to watch TV, I'll watch it on my laptop. People watch it, they watch Star Wars on their phone. I mean, Oh my God, people watch movies on their phone all the time. Yeah, yeah. it's crazy to me. I don't do that. It's just, don't have to like, I do, I have a pretty good multiplex pretty close to me. It's like 12 blocks away. And it's one of these places. I mean, like the seat goes back. You're like super, super Oh yeah, those are the best. It's just super cozy. I went and saw Dune there because it's like, you know what? Big screen movie. Or occasionally I'll meet Bill Schultz up there. We'll go to a movie. But like, it's just not, do you ever think like, wow, it's the weekend. Maybe I'll go to a movie. Like that used to be a thing. Of it's course. Thing I used anymore. to actually, so I actually used to go to, to multiplexes and like go in the morning, like their first movie at 11 o'clock. And then I would just leapfrog from oh, yeah. theater to theater, yeah. not paying. Oh for the movies and I would see like three movies a day this is like back in the 90s and the early aughts that's exactly what my daughter's dad used to do with my daughter because he had her on the weekends and they'd go to the movies and they'd spend the whole day just seeing movies oh my god it was so much fun you know and you're just sort of like oh what am I going to go to next all right let's see what's up let's roll the roulette wheel um Um, so yeah. sorry to spring that hot box that but it but I do chef reactions he's also on I mean he's on Twitter um but not not on YouTube surprisingly because I wanted to link something of his on Paloma Media and I couldn't do it there but um it's it's really a lot of fun and I think he's a uh, he think he's super cool so well um my hot box recommendation is a little bit related to what we were just talking about actually because uh it 
is an interview with one of my favorite journalists, John Ronson, on oh. another one of my favorite people, Megan Daum's podcast, this, uh, The Unspeakable, which has returned from its summer hiatus. And they have a wonderful conversation about so many things. I mean, speaking about like, like, you know, you said like when you need an escape or you want to come down or something like that. I don't know. There's something about John Ronson's voice oh, that yeah. just absolutely calms my nervous system. And it is such a great feeling listening to this man. And, you know, I really, I I admire his work so much. I know I've talked about it on this show before. Um, If you haven't listened to John Ronson's podcast, Things Fell Apart, which is, I think, an eight-part story about the culture wars and their origin stories. I, I just think it's an absolute masterwork of storytelling and talking about kind of how we got here, which is so uniquely what I'm interested in. Now, I get really, really exhausted by everyone's opinions and everyone telling me how to think. And one of the things that I think Ronson does so beautifully is he doesn't tell you how to think. He just kind of takes you into the the story of how we got here. And he's so good about showing you different sides. You know, one of the things he talks about in this interview is the fact that, you know, he's not a pundit. I mean, thank God for that. I'm t- I don't, I don't need more yeah, pundits. Don't need I don't, I don't want to be, you know, and I don't want to be a pundit either. This is something that I've felt over the past few years is that like, I don't want to tell you whether that's good or bad. I don't want to tell you what I want to, I want to understand how this happened and what's going on. I want to diagnose rather than prescribe what to do. So anyway, uh, I love him. Uh, You know, he had this really great line where he was talking about, his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And he said, you know, I'm just sick of us making troubled people our playthings. And he's talking about online media. He's talking about the dark side of what we just spoke about a a moment ago, you know, and, and, and the idea that, uh, particularly when it comes to people that have just maybe said something. They're just normal, everyday people. They said something, it becomes a kind of blood sport to take them down. This has been going on, you know, for probably close to 10 years. Um, It's a very profound idea. I think about it all the time. So, you know, there is a shadow side to our hunger for gossip. and and he's somebody that has really revealed that in many of his stories. So I'm going to second that recommendation. I listened to it as well. Um, I think I mentioned it on on one of these episodes, but John Ronson has been here. He's been in my apartment, and we've had cake and coffee uh, because Michael Moynihan of the Fifth Column uh, did an interview uh, with John, right? actually right here where I'm sitting. And um, I'll put a link to that. Uh, and Michael and John know each other because in So You've Been Publicly Shamed, I think it's mm. the opening chapter, um, talking about the uh, writer Jonah Lehrer who got busted for basically making up some information about uh, Bob Dylan in a piece. And Michael Moynihan, who's like a big Dylan brainiac, he's brainiac about everything, but he just was like, he had never heard this. And he just literally contacted Ronson and was like, whoa, where did you get that? I, I can't believe that. Where did, can you tell me where we found it? And, and, and Jonah Lear was like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm leaving for vacation with family. I'll get back to you on Monday. Michael's like, okay, cool. And then it turned out 
it was something more than that. that yeah, I, I I didn't remember that Michael Moynihan had yes. broken the story so, of Joan Allaire's, um, uh, you know, there's sort of like, uh, it's not really plagiarism, it's sort of inventing quotes. Yes. And then later it's yes. discovered that some of the, and some of so, the passages were know, also copied from other work that he'd done. Yes. And Lara really had a big fall from grace. And so uh, John Ronson wrote this story and included obviously Michael in it and they've, they've become friendly. And so it's a good interview and I, and I will put a link to that. But what you were saying in terms of not wanting to tell people how to think, my God, I should have that tattooed on the inside of my arm because it's why I have a, such a difficult time sometimes writing because people ask me to write an opinion piece, right? For the times or for Newsweek or something. And I always have a very hard time because I'm like, who the fuck cares what I think? Like, what? Who cares? But the fact is when you, people do care what you think when you've walked around in an area for a very, very, very long time. For instance, if yes. someone asked me to write about, to write about mothers who kill their children, I can do this because I've written about this. I've spent years in this world. It's a bit unusual. And so I sort of, it's not like I'm an authority on it, but I can talk about it. But, but I never to never on the tip of a spear, like I'm going to convince you now. I, oh my God, I just, I kind of hate that sort of responsibility. There are some people that can just rattle them off and they're so graceful and they do it so well and they're funny and everything. I just, I can't, I just want to, I just want to find out what's going on and like, then try to bring the story out to the reader, which is what I'm doing with this, uh, with this next, story if people show up. So we'll see about that. Um, One of the, the other thing before we leave is I want to mention that um, in the interview, Ronson had, had, as he's doing the interview with Megan Daum, he, he uh, mentions that he's just gotten an email that, that, so you've been publicly shamed was banned in Texas. And I was like, what? <laughs> so uh, I wanted to look into that. And then I just found out that sure enough uh, in, in Fort Worth, which is the, the sister city to Dallas, uh, there had been, um, uh, a, you know, the, the board of education had, had decided to pull a bunch of books from the public library and, uh, they included the graphic novel version of Anne Frank's diary and the Bible bizarrely. And, um, they pulled the Bible. Yeah. I don't, I never, that one was never explained to me. Um, but they also pulled, so you've been publicly shamed. Um, you know, you and I have talked a lot about the, um, the kind of excesses sometimes on the left around culture wars, but certainly those have been responded to by excesses on the right. This is one of them here in Texas. I feel this probably a bit more acutely than other people. Um, so anyway, I just want to give a little vote of, um, you know, of love to say you've been publicly shamed, read a banned book. You know, yeah, go, go get the book. It's it's, it's <laughs> what just they so... don't want you to know. <laughs> By the way, it's a fantastic book, and it would it's be wonderful good. for high school students to be reading this. But uh... it's also really, it's really juicy. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, I read the hell out of this book. Juicy. Yeah, I've read it a few times. I'm going to actually throw one more very quick, um, quick hot box item. So Ben Dreyfus, who is a just fabulous writer and thinker. And I love this guy. He's also been here. He's a very, he's like one of the most beloved fifth column guests. Um, he has a Substack, and it's been called good faith, but he just rebranded, I think yesterday calling it calm down. Ben I like is, that. okay. Ben Dreyfus is one of the funniest people you will ever read or meet. He is the son of, of Richard Dreyfus. Uh, he is, just 
his brain works in ways I don't even know how he gets there. And yet it's so humane. It's so funny. It's so, he, he draws way outside the lines. Uh, big, big, uh, big uh, thumbs up to uh, Ben Dreyfus's Substack now called Calm Down. So. Which we should all do. Let's all calm down. Let's all calm down. So, Nancy, um, what else do you want to talk about? Well, we were talking about a few, we were discussing amongst ourselves um, a few stories in which people were not very calm. Mm. 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 Yeah, I'm not even sure which ones you're talking about because you're talking yeah, about several stories. <laughs> Give me a little bit more of a hint. The University of Arizona, that's a story mm. that's coming out. Yes, uh, there's a big story Sunday. in the New York Times Magazine yes. this Sunday, which is about, uh, do you want to share the story of what ha- went um, down there? Yeah, kind of, kind of not. I, I don't know. It's it's sort of a story of uh, University of Arizona, a couple of gals who would be considered more on the left. Um, and they were sort of spearheading a multicultural space that they kind of fought the university for, for a couple of years. And in the, after the the killing of George Floyd, they got their way, but they took over basically a library. It had been a library space that was just sort of a big room. It wasn't a particular, they didn't, they didn't really do any rebranding. It was just the room where people went and studied or did whatever. Um, and a couple of weeks after it had opened, um, there were two guys in there, two white dudes. Uh, one had on a shirt that said, I didn't vote for Biden. And the other had a, I think a police lives matter uh, sticker, sticker on, on his, his laptop. On his laptop. And they were studying. Uh, one also worked, he was in school um, studying anatomy in order to go on to medical school. And he also worked uh, at a hospital um, doing, I guess, some kind of like, I don't know, EMT work or something, nursing work. And um, he was there looking at that. And these girls came up and started challenging them and said, you know, you're you're making people feel unsafe or why are you in this space? This is a multicultural space and your cult- there is no such thing as white culture. And they'd previously, someone had seen them and called some sort of I don't know, people that work at the school, I don't know if it's staff or it's like extra staff, and said there are two white supremacists here in the multicultural room. And the people they called said, okay, well, we'll send some people over, but the girls didn't wait, and they confronted them. Of course, they filmed them. And I didn't watch the video because I just listened to the story yesterday while I was getting a manicure. Mm. Um, and um, uh, the guys were like, but you can hear it. It's like, what? Like they're, And then it got kind of heated, especially on the part of the girls who were, of course, filming. Nobody wants to be filmed. Plus, this guy was like working all night. He's trying to study. Anyway, it got a little heated. And then, of course, it just it just exploded. It just became, you know, a year long, you know, so the viral, viral video, guy's life ruined. Also, you know, the story- the women the way- involved got yeah, for the, pretty their, slagged. Their yeah. lives got dragged too, because you are, you are, the women were women of color. One was black. One I'm was sorry. Like, one of them is non-binary. I should say that. that they, they, yes. Yeah, sorry. They, they got dragged. And then there's a, a girl from India, I believe. I think she was, or mm-hmm. Pakistani. And, you know, the this is Arizona where apparently the between the online enrollment and the uh, student body, which is 60,000, there's 100,000 students. They come from all 50 states and a buku number of countries. So you, you are not going to have one kind of thinking there. It's just not going to be the case, right? Absolutely. And so it became a real sort of cultural flashpoint. So you have, you had the people that are more on the right, including, of course, like the Tucker Carlson's of the world who get involved and they're just like, 
you're, we're going to pull, we should pull funding from this school right. because they're enforcing segregation. They didn't want these white guys in the library. And you've got people on the left saying, we cannot countenance, we cannot countenance white supremacists. This is a multicultural space. And one girl saying, you know, just seeing them made me think of situations my grandmother had been in. She was black and, you know, the white guys would come and attack her. It just became this. The way this ramped up, this was a very small in like infraction, whatever it is, it's a small human interaction of two people being in a study space that other people might not want them in. It ramped up so fast on both sides. Um, and in you know, the predictable stuff, the death threats, the horrible pictures, especially for the 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 non-binary mm-hmm. uh, yes. person. Um, I mean, Cola is the Ticola, name. They received some. Imaging, I'm not even going to go into what it was. It's just so beyond disgusting. I have to say that people that people do not feel shame that they that they do this. I just I, it's it it's unspeakably disgusting. Um, and on the other side, one guy would not speak with the journalist, um, but the other one, you know, basically his the hospital where he was working, and this is a I think he's 23, he's newly married. And he's working, you know, he's he's working 60 hours a week and going to school and trying to get ahead. And basically the people at where his hospital are like, dude, you know, you might have to give up your dreams of being a doctor because, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff is just going to follow you. And it's like, for what? And here's what I kind of, I'm not trying to sound naive here, but if you are going to have a multicultural space, right, well, that means you want all kinds of people there, Right. I think to me, and I could be wrong, I actually don't fault someone for wearing a I didn't vote for Biden shirt or police lives matter too, especially because something like 40% of police officers are people of color. I might be getting that stat wrong, but like, you know, it's like you, you don't have to hate the police. I understand people are afraid of the police for various, you know, real reasons and not real reasons. But if you're going to have a multicultural space, that says to me, that you have some interest in the cultures having cross-pollinization and, and conversation. That is not what happened here. It was assumed that these guys were white supremacists. I, I find that to be a bit of a leap yeah. um, based on a sticker and a shirt. You can say it's obnoxious, and I mean, maybe it is. Maybe yeah. wearing a I didn't vote for Biden shirt is provocative. It is provocative, but it is, is it is it is it grounds for someone not being able to live their life again? I mean, some people think it is. Some people think, well, that's too bad. You know what? You started it. You wore that shirt. You're going to get what you it, you wore that shirt into a space where we feel that that's not civil, and you know you get what you it you brought it on yourself. Was that the sense that you got from yeah, this piece? Well, look, you know, I am of the opinion, there's a little cognitive disconnect for me here because I do not see either of those those signifiers. You know, I've, I voted, I didn't vote for Biden or Police Lives Matter as hate speech. I don't. I, I, I don't. don't. Um, like I don't you, I either. find them as potentially obnoxious and provocative, but I don't see them as that that way. You know, this is something that I've really not been able to like to like tune my ear into is people that take that, you know, when you hear that like a blue lives matter, uh, 
sticker or bumper, you know, bumper sticker is, is white supremacy. I can't, like, I can't board that train with you. No, of course um, not. And the, you know, I don't know that I, I, well, I actually do know. I don't think that amplification uh, serves, serves the individual who feels that way or the discourse in general. And as far as the multicultural space, I mean, I think there's, there's an uh, there's a conversation to be had about whether that is a place of of shelter in terms of multicultural space meaning you know a a, a safe space for people that are identifies you know in, in varying cultures or whether it's a place of interaction between the cultures um oh okay so i you know what i think i think that the article would would back you up on that i yeah. think that um um People were saying, and they were saying that we need a place where we feel safe. Every other space, every other space is axiomatically a white space and always has been historically a white space. And we need a space. It's not saying that whites were excluded. I don't think they were. And I think if those had been two white guys that had been wearing a, you know, a fish t-shirt or something, um, not the Christian fish, but the band. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Yeah, probably this been, this wouldn't it, have happened. It wouldn't have been an issue. I don't think so. I don't think it had to do with the fact that they were white and male, though those were, you know, those were quick little pings and then it just got tipped. Um, you know, anyway, it was, um, it, but you're absolutely right. This was not an easy for, story for any party that was involved. I'm going to take it one step further and say that the author of this article, whose name you're going to look up because you're always good at looking <laughs> things up when I'm 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 not because I've got I've got a soundboard in front of me, which is a in That's the right. way of me getting to my my uh, my my keyboard. Um, at the beginning of the piece, she mentioned she's like, well, you know, um, one of the boys chose to speak with me because he said, I know something like, I know you would understand. And she's like, because of a story I wrote two years ago um, for the New York Times Magazine about something that happened with my wife and me. And I remembered that story. And that story is bonkers. Yes. And you brought that story to my attention last night. So this is a story that's written by a woman named Sarah Viren, V-I-R-E-N. I assume that's the the pronunciation. Yes. I didn't know this story at all. You didn't remember this story? Who... Do you, do you want me to? to yeah, give go the, ahead. Go ahead. Okay. So Sarah Viren and her wife Marta, they were both academics, and I guess I'm sorry. I kind of re- I skimmed it last night. I read it when it came out. I skimmed it last night, so I may be getting some of the details wrong. But my impression was they had they had lived in Michigan, and they both kind of really wanted to work there again, but they weren't there. So so they were at Sarah, Arizona State. Yeah, they were at Arizona State. But Sarah, you know, Marta really kind of wanted to go back to Michigan, and and so Sarah's like, you know what? Okay, I will. Apply to get a teaching job there because they're in academia. And so um, she did. And in the meanwhile, I guess Marta was too. And then there was also something like called spousal preference or something like if you got a job and if your spouse was also applying, maybe they'd have like a little leg up. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm botching whatever the, the language is. So this is happening. And then they're at a cocktail party. It's like a fan, there's like kids and people playing. And Marta's like, I just got a weird. I got a weird text or a weird email, something about like, I've been accused of some kind of sexual harassment. And, and Sarah's like, not really thinking of it. She's like, with spam? I don't know. There's like kids, people are having wine, whatever. Well, it turns out that Marta has been accused of students of, um, of, 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 
they're lesbians, okay? So these are women's female students are accusing uh, her of ha- having made uh, unwanted advances, unwanted touching, um, having the student come to her office and offering wine and wanting to have sex. Now, Sarah knows none of this is absolutely true. First of all, for kind of basic reasons, besides just knowing her wife is not going to do this, number one, she doesn't have meetings in her office. Number two, she doesn't really drink. So all right. of, there's just like all kinds of red flags on the play. Then there's there's an email. So I guess Marta had taught in Spain. And in Spain, I don't remember the names, but you go by like two names, like, you know, Mrs. Flores Rodriguez, but they would call you Flores. Right. And someone asked me what the, so, right. So now one of the accusations comes from a student there saying, well, you know, Ms. Rodriguez. And it's like, it's not even right. Like everything's weird, but they can't figure it out. So they start looking into it and, oh, what starts happening now? Michigan's like, um, I, I, we're having some weird you know, messaging here, we're getting messaging too. And I don't know, we've got to really talk. And then I think the Arizona state people, I think might've also gotten involved. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it, I'm not Well, obviously go. there's a title nine investigation at, at Arizona state uh, that they have to engage in. Yeah. So both, both universities are getting anonymous and, and these, these are anonymous by the way. Um, but, and from different names, and it's from not different just like names. one person. Um, Anyway, then the accusations bleed over into Sarah to like, I was invited over to their house and then Marta took me into the bedroom and Sarah was lying there without her shirt on. And then she made me put my hand on her wife's breast. It's just like, like none of this is true, but how do you prove that it's not true? I have to, I'm just going to cut in for a second. The thing that drove me the most bananas when I was a kid and actually still now, but like it made me crazy as a kid was when someone would say to me that I said or did something that I knew I had not done. I would lose it. I would have a fit. So you can understand these women are, are, you know, they've got two little kids. They're, they're trying to, move their lives forward and they're being accused of things that have absolutely no validity. Well, we're just going to... And, and accusations are so... Like, it's... Imp- I, even as I was reading this story, I was like, are we sure Marta didn't do this? Like, I, like my mind starts going into... Because once somebody's been accused, you just... You cannot erase that entirely. Can't I mean, one of the things down. that Sarah... That the author Sarah bemoans is the fact that, like, once you lodge this complaint about her topless on the bed reaching for someone's breast, she's like, all of the faculty is going to be envisioning this, which sure enough, I was. Yeah, exactly. I had that movie going in my head like, oh exactly. gosh, is that, maybe this is like an elaborate thing that they're covering up. Ah, your mind goes into crazy little little corners. Um, We're just going to give some spoilers here and, and it can't be like two giant spoilers because first of all, it, it, it turns out, is that okay if I give the spoiler? I think, yeah. I yeah, go ahead. Um, So it turns out Early on in this process, um, b- before they've even talked about it, before I think it's even started to blow up, um, Sarah gets a text from someone she knows in Michigan. Um, she just calls him Jay. It's a guy, a gay guy. And he's like, oh, you know, if you weren't getting that job, I might be might be going to me, but hey, good luck and everything. And she's like, oh, great. You know, I'm, we're not really sure if I'm going to get it or not yet. And then he keeps like talking to her. He keeps like saying things. Well, on and on and on and on. It it turns out it's this guy, Jay, who has just been making all of this up in order that he can get the job at Michigan, 
or I guess ostensibly in his mind, this is why right. he's doing it. Um, but it's also becomes this absolutely sort of Jesse Smollett persecution, mm, fake persecution. Absolutely. And because when he starts getting busted, what does he do? He just like turns up the the heat to 900 and he's like, oh my God, I'm getting, you know, I'm getting swamped with homophobic messages and oh my God, someone threw a brick through my car window and oh my God, I'm so sick. It's just like, he's someone who is so, has become so addicted to both being looking like the victim while actually being the person who's victimizing others. Um, and, you know, they did kind of, I guess they, well, they, they didn't go to Michigan obviously, because uh, the first story she was writing from Arizona State. We forgot to say that. She, the writer is a professor mm-hmm. at Arizona State, and that's why she she wrote this story because it was swirling all around her. Um, but it, I, I can say, as someone who's also, you know, and, and you have been too in, in different forms, who've been on the accused end of an internet lie. You know, someone wants to to lie about you. And, you know, we, we all had this happen in like sixth grade. You know, someone says something nasty about you and you know it's not true, but they're doing it to be catty or whatever. Like the girl that called me a whore when I was 12 and I didn't know what the word meant. I didn't know what it meant. Oh, and yeah, I asked, yeah, yeah. No, I you're reminding like, me that I saw a couple of crazy rumors about me after that Atlantic piece came out. Oh, huh. And there was somebody that was like, uh, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Somebody said I was at the college newspaper with Sarah and she bullied people that didn't drink. Which, by the way, actually <gasps> might have been true, but like it was, uh, was just brilliant. Oh, no. like, like, I mean, Black honestly, like, I, 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 thought, I thought it was a joke at the time, you guys. But then <laughs> said like she leveraged her power with younger staffers, male staffers, and there were many rumors about her at the time, which I now wonder about. Okay. Wait, like, like what kind? What does that mean? Leverage? I- like I they would know. service you in order to get jobs. Yeah, exactly. Now let oh, me just let me just. Well. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> um, no, look. Let me just point out something about the language here. Leveraged her power with younger staffers. I was 20 years old at the time that I ran the entertainment section. the 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 guy that was my associate editor was 19. Um, so if I was leveraging my power with younger staffers, it was somebody that was maybe at most one or two years younger than me. Also, I had no power. Also, I, by the way, I had no sex in college. This is like a sad thing about me. Like I had very little, very little sex. I wouldn't have even known how to leverage my power. Um, but, uh, but the language was such that it was like, I, I, and I just, I, I remember it, it was, it was in a, I think it was in a Michael Hobbs thread and Michael Hobbs was like, you know, dragging me. And, um, I think it was just this person that was kind of like wanted to be part of the party and have some kind of information. I mean, I suspect they did go to college with me. I suspect they did know me when I was working at the UT newspaper. Um, but this is like 30 years later, they're going to like bring this up after your Atlantic article. What is that? What, what, I leveraged what? my power with younger staffers, <laughs> and I bullied. I, that rumor. <laughs> I bullied people who didn't drink, but then and she and she said, or he, whoever it was, said something like, um, "You know, 
I, I had a lot more sympathy for her after I read the book and realized that she had a drinking problem. So I direct oh. messaged this person on Twitter and I said, hey, you know, it sounds like we know each other and you you remember some stories that I don't remember. Like, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, wait, hold on. Let me, yeah, let me, I was going to say, give, give me 20 seconds yeah, to right? figure out whether you got a response. No, of course not. Because they're going to run away. The only story I, you know, I kind of had like large stories told about me, not like specific things. So I'm not, but I will, I'll tell a story from, high school. This boy in school, his sister did not go to our school. She went to boarding school. God, this beautiful girl. She was so incredibly beautiful. Anyway, he says to me one day, yeah, my sister told me that when she was on Montague Street and she was being beat up and her head was being smashed onto the ground, you were standing there watching. I was like, excuse me? Like, first of all, I... I had no information that this ever happened to this girl, and I have no idea if it, it did. It sounds impossible. Montague Street is this little, like, fancy little neighborhood, like, in broad right. daylight, someone's getting this. That's not going to happen. But second of all, the idea that I would have stood and watched that, I don't—I I was so—I was stunned into silence. I was like, David, that would never happen. It was like one time when I had a friend of mine accuse me, like, I used to watch her her toddler, and she would watch my toddler, and she's like, you know— my daughter says when she goes to your house, you never feed her. I'm like, have we met? <laughs> because there is no way I don't not feed people. Right. It's the first right. thing no I kidding. do when you, when you walk into my house. But I don't know why people do these things. They've got some sort of, maybe it doesn't even have anything to do with you. Maybe it's like they're having a bad day and they're just like, I got to lash out. I got to do yeah, something. Maybe gotta... they think it's true. I have no idea. Maybe there's oh, some mistaken maybe. identity. They've conflated people. I have no idea. Um, I don't know what's going on here. But there's, you know, in, in my case, I mean, this was just so low stakes. This was some rando on the internet sounding off. But, you know, when you have somebody that makes that complaint to an official board, then that is going to create a lot of of issues oh, yeah. for you. You know, this author, Sarah Viren, she goes to great lengths to say that she really believes in the process of Title IX. You know, I, I actually think there's some there's some problems there that, that they're spending way too much money and way too many resources. Like when we talk about why college is so expensive, you know, we have to think about this bureaucratic bloat that is investigating all these different complaints. Um, and, and if you want to read a little bit more about how some of these go, like there isn't like a really high bar for the seriousness of them. Like you can read Laura Kipnis's Unwanted Advances, uh, which is a book I about, read that. I haven't oh read yeah, that. it's great. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, a great yeah, read yeah. and it's a story about a, a Title IX complaint that she was uh, investigated for after writing a story yeah. about yeah. Title IX complaints. Um, so, uh, you know, anyway, uh oh boy college you know one of the things that 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 sarah makes a point of saying in her piece about the uh the the viral video that goes that goes nuts in uh, uh, after the uh, encounter in the multicultural space is that she feels like this is part of a push to delegitimize college i had to sit that with that for a second that was fascinating but I don't. Anyway, continue. well, I mean, continue. I have been prone to say, I you know, I, look, if it's part of that push to do it, it's working because, as somebody who is in their forties, I don't have kids, but you know, like I am more, I am more sympathetic to the kind of like, God, do you need college? Do you need to go to college? Like I have sort of been delegitimizing college in my mind too. It's so expensive. There are like I. I really think we need to have a come to Jesus meeting on what college is for. You know, what is it doing? I, I agree with you 
1,000%. I went to college. There's no reason I should have gone to college. None. The only reason I went to college is because it was the world I grew up in. Certainly not the world my parents grew up in. They both grew up in like really working, super working class. And, um, but it was expected. And I'd had a really weird high school experience where I dropped out of high school and then I went back. So I went to college. There's no reason I shouldn't have gone. I should have just gone and worked. My daughter um, did not go to college. She went to art school for a little while. And then she started working in the film business. Um, And I, that was great. We had some money that had been set aside, some money my father like put in the market when she was born and we never touched it. And it was just like sitting there 20 years later. It helped her when she went to New York and wanted to like, had to rent an apartment, all that stuff. But um, I never, I don't care at all that she, why should, first of all, why does she need to have gone to college? She has made her way incredibly beautifully, um, carving her own route in the film business and in design and in photography. She did go to um, the International Center for Photography for like six or nine months and got a really kind of like interesting experience. And I don't know what it's called, not a degree, but something from there. And she loves to study and take classes places. But to go to a traditional college, why? I think at 18, a lot of kids don't have any clue what they're going to do. And that's fine. They can go work. They can go to community college. They can go travel. They can go learn a trade. But the idea that we have to go to college, and, and you know, uh, on the Reason Roundtable, they were talking about this a little because of uh, the forgiveness of the college loans. And and mm. Nick Gillespie's like, you know, you on average, like if you do get a four-year degree, on average, like men make, you know, X amount of dollars more over their lifetime and women Y amount of dollars. So he, he is basically saying, go ahead, go to college, spend money, get the loan because it's going to it's going to work out for you later. You're going to earn more. And that may well be true. But the thing is that to literally go to one of these liberal art colleges that cost like $80,000 a year now, $60,000 a year, and the kudzu that you also need to enter, I don't get it. But my here's my question to you. When she mentioned this in this piece, sort of a a campaign to delegitimize college or a a higher education. I was like, well, who would be behind that? Like, what's the long game here? You know, the the longshoremen union, they want more longshoremen. Is it it a particular political party that want the sort of like classism? They want to destroy that. Like who would, in whose interest is it to get rid of um, colleges? Well, I didn't, I think what she might have been referring to, if I had to guess, was that there is a perception grounded in a great deal of reality that the uh, the colleges have become largely liberal and there is a sort of institutional capture there uh, ideologically and that there is a push, particularly from the right wing, to show those colleges in a ridiculous light and to delegitimize them. You know, uh, sure, I, that 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 is happening. Uh, but I think you're also getting some of the push from people like in the middle, like even you and I. Well, here, I mean, that's the thing. The, 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 the problem is, is that there, I mean, you know, there really are a lot of problems going on with how with how college is is designed. Whether or not you should go to college, I think, rests very much on what career you want to pursue. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't have any idea what career that we want to pursue at the age of 18, which is I one didn't. of the reasons that actually, you know, I would recommend 
college, you know, was it it gave me for actually five years to kind of figure that out and to make my way and, and, and dick around. I went to a state university. Um, the, the cost wasn't that high. You know, the stakes really weren't that high. I think my first semester was $800 or something like that. This is a university that, you know, is, is, is probably 20,000 now. I don't know. That's really interesting. I never really thought of it that way. If you could go to a place that's affordable, which I, I guess state schools are, I, I don't they really were. know. They were. I think there's okay. been quite um, quite a, a spike in prices. But You know, you could spend your time, you could spend the five years of the four years from 18 to 22, you could spend it, um, you know, working a job, probably pretty low level job because, you know, you're 18, you don't have a lot of skills yet. And you could do that and then like have your life at night Absolutely. or the morning, whatever you want. Or you could have that same experience at school, you know, you could be in school and maybe have a part-time job or so it's like, yeah, okay, you could spend time. I mean, I love studying. I think that's super cool, you know, to be able to, I remember I had a friend, oh, rest his soul. He died so young. He shouldn't have. He had a, he had a knee operation and they were like giving him a physical therapy on a treadmill and he threw a blood clot and he died. It was so sad. Larry he was such a cool guy. But anyway, he and I used to talk about, he's like, He's, he's from Texas. He's like, wouldn't it be cool? He's like, if you could just go to college when you're like 40. I was like, yeah, because then you'd really like, you kind of know what you wanted to do. You'd be a good student. You would be fucking off all the time. And he's like, we should just have like a, we should just like have a retirement community where we just like study all the time. I was like, I'll go, I'll totally go. Um, but um, yeah, young people are not ready. I, 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 one thing, I want a little bit of advice I will give to anybody out there who wants to cook. You're interested in being a chef. Go work in a restaurant. Don't go to cooking school. Go work in a restaurant. 100%. Well, and, um, you know, there's several different uh, jobs that you could really learn a lot better by learning on the ground. I mean, one of the things that was circulating around social media this in the last few days was how much a journalism master's degree costs. Oh, well, um, I have no, I have zero idea. What is it? What is it? Cost? Well, the number that was being quoted on Twitter was something like 160,000, but it's for a year. But the Columbia Journalism um, page quotes 120,000. For one for year. Your estimated cost of living and room and board. And how, and, how many years is a degree? Two years? I think it might just be one year. Actually. Okay. So yeah, but okay. for I mean, graduate, but, that's weird because graduate degrees usually are. Ma- yeah, the, I think they have a one-year master's program. Okay, still 120. I mean, I really don't know what entry levels journalism jobs pay because I'm freelance and always have been. Sometimes I read things like, oh, you know, I can't believe I've got this new job at, and I'm only making eighty-five thousand dollars a year. I'm like, girl. I'll take it. So, um, yeah, I, I can't imagine that there are that many entry level journalism jobs that pay, you know, six figures. But oh no, of course not. And, and in fact, yeah, like I mean, uh, yeah, you're, like you're, you're thirty five, right? Thirty five thousand, forty five thousand yeah, is sort yeah. of your more entry level position. Yeah. We're running yeah. out of time, but we yeah. also at some point we're gonna. We had talked about discussing a story in Publishers Weekly about whether or not the publishing industry is broken. This is a place where um, a lot of the low level entry salaries for people that work in publishing are becoming an issue of more debate. Um, we'll link the story in. Uh, in the episode notes. Um, but you know, this is, uh, something that has, that has leaked out a little bit more on social media because people have a, a megaphone to kind of talk about their disgruntlement. Uh, I think the publishing industry, uh, is something that a, a lot of people have often had, uh, complaints about. There's a complaints about an increasing workload and a corporate culture and a lot of things that made the perk 
like a lot of the perks that made a job in publishing a lot better uh, because maybe you didn't get paid that much, but you got things like really cool parties and you got to hod, not hobnob with these awesome authors and all of those things have kind of gone away because of the pandemic. Um, and so, you know, there, <clears throat> it's an interesting piece that reflects a lot of the different tensions that we're seeing across various, <laughs> various, um, industries right now. Certainly this is true in journalism. Um, there's a quote in here that says many sources, especially older members of the industry said what's happening in publishing as part of a wider generational clash between baby boomers and Gen X on one side and millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z on the other. They see it as a case of exasperated managers colliding with a faction of outspoken idealistic assistants who are unrealistic about the nature of work in general. Um, I would say that that is probably true, that there is in a certain extent to which uh, my, my Gen X <laughs> opinion, my <laughs> if I'm going to be a pundit on this, um, is that there is certainly is a degree to which younger people seem to have a kind of unrealistic sense of what work might be. Uh, I would also say at the same time, uh, it is also true that their workload is up. You know, the number of manuscripts that they get sent has like doubled. Um, and they read all that in their off time. And so, you know, and that's because there's more agents than there have ever been. And that's because there's people leaving publishing that realize that they can, they can get more money as agents. So, you know, so it's kind of like the screws are getting tightened on all sides. And um, yeah. Yeah, I, I have a lot of feelings on that. We don't, I don't know how much time we have. I remember when I first, my first gig as a writer, I read scripts for a living for ICM, International Creative Management. I don't even know if there's still an agency anymore, if they've yeah. morphed and become something else. Um, but I used to like go in there, wheel my daughter's baby stroller, and I'd go and pick up four scripts, and I would read two a day and get, you know, I get paid. It was piecework, essentially. But I do remember... Um, the agents themselves, like going home every weekend, even, and like especially the junior agents with like you know twenty scripts. Like you are you are working a lot. I think what's changed is that well, first of all, there are there are forums on which to publicly complain, which they didn't really have um, back when I was doing this, which was in the nineties. Um, but there is an expectation that younger workers. Um, would like to know what their employers can do for them. Um, I told you a story of one particular instance where uh, there was someone at my husband's company who was suggesting my husband would go to, um, I may have told this story already on the show. Um, he would go because he was a coffee roaster. He would go to uh, different countries and meet farmers and, you know, he'd work with them and figure out what kind of green beans he wanted to buy and all that. And someone that was with the company at the time said, well, could we maybe have something like, there were like 30 baristas or something at the cafes. And, and she was like, well, can we have it that like, if someone does a really good job, then they can go on the trip with you. And my husband's like, well, no, because it's, this is like a really specialized thing that I'm doing. Plus it's like thousands and thousands of dollars to then bring them along. And she said to him, well, then what's the incentive to work here? And he said, well, uh, salary tips and health insurance. Like it wasn't enough. Like there was something. And then there was also a real push. And we've seen this across the board, or at least in the things that we read, People want to know that their companies have the values that they have, and they mm, feel this is very important. We saw this happen with Coinbase, and we saw this happen with with Basecamp, where 
um, employees. And, and of course, we've had it also happen at like, you know, Netflix and, and HBO. Like people are like, well, I don't agree with your politics. And I feel like we need to change it from the inside. And we need a lot of meetings. And people are like, I am now spending 70% of my day on HR with employees. And I can't run my business. And that's like, that is, that is not something you maybe see when you are the junior employee. You're just like, I have, I think that my ideas are cool. Your ideas might be cool, but here's the thing. You work, you bring solutions, not problems, right? If I walk in, you're my boss, Sarah Heppala, and every day That's we right. run I'm out of- That's right. I'm glad you're acknowledging that finally. Finally, right? Every day in the cafeteria, we run out of orange juice, okay? Every single day. Now, do I get up a cabal of people and a petition and I go online and I yell about the orange juice? Or do I go into your office and say, Sarah, listen, or no, Ms. Heppala, hi, can I come in? Um, listen, we're running out of orange juice every day by eight o'clock. So I have an idea. What if I came in at like 645 and just made sure like they were filled? Would you feel okay with that? Bring me solutions, not problems. And I feel at least these articles that we're reading, they're expecting somebody else to take care of things. And if they don't, then the employer is the villain. It sort of ties into this quiet quitting nonsense. It's like, look, quiet quitting quitting basically means you don't like your job. And if you don't like your job, this is what you do. You leave and get a different job. Um, or if you don't like your job, maybe it's because you're not, you, you just don't want to kick ass there. That's fine. You don't have to. You can go do something else. But people hopefully, not always, you're going to hate some jobs, right? But then you go on to get a better job. Um, anyway, I, I think that the people complaining may, it doesn't mean that the publishing industry cannot improve. It can. Every industry can improve. And I just but, want to point out that, that the publishing industry has been in a bit of a boom time over the last couple of years because they have actually really benefited from the pandemic. So it's true that there's a little bit more money they could spread around here. I, oh, Maybe so. I mean, I will say that, you know, bottom lines are never what they look. I, I don't really know because I don't know. Right. It's true. I don't know what it means. There's that, so that, yeah. many, sure. there's so many, I told this story once, like when I first got to Portland, I read this person wrote a letter saying, I can't believe that restaurant charged $30 for a steak. I can buy that steak for $10 in the supermarket. It's like, yeah, but do you also like factor in the rent and the light and the payroll and the workman's comp and the cost of water? And then you got to pay this, you know, this, it's like, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. The margins on publishing, I don't know how high they are, but they may not be as high as the, uh, as the employee expects. Um, not saying there isn't room for improvement. Um, well, okay. I can tell you that when I was working with my younger interns at Salon, there were a lot of them, you know, that I started to see these patterns with, you know, that they would, they would, point out, you know, like, oh, I don't want to do this grunt work or like, you know, there's these problems with the system. All of this was true. I understand it. But the ones that really succeeded were the ones that came in and just absolutely kicked ass. And you could see it from the beginning. You know, you could just see like, oh, that guy's going to go really far. And that guy did go really far. That guy is now, you know, writing for the New York Times or writing for the New York Magazine. Um, this is 100%. So I, I, I'll put a link to it. So I, I'm part of a new podcast that's out called Killed. And it's about big magazine stories or newspaper stories that got killed. And this, they did a really bang up job, man. I listened to my episode, which is about my John Wayne Gacy story, which actually eventually did get published, but it first was killed. Right. And um, I was, so that's interesting. But this, I'm actually part of another project that they're 
with some people that they're working on this Gacy thing. And he's talking to the writer uh, on the phone a couple of nights ago. And he's like, well, you know, when you were a young writer, were you like, you know, I know I could do better. I know that I have like bigger dreams. And then you were like, kind of like poo-pooing like the small stories you had to do. I was like, uh, I would have written about a can of peas. I was so excited to have gotten in the room. I mean, see, I'm almost going to get emotional now. Like I was so, so excited. I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. I would do anything and did. And it was, I was just, I couldn't believe I was being allowed to do this. Now, every job is not going to make you feel that way. You know, if you're making, making, No. And I think one of the things we need to realize is that work is sometimes work. And it is. And I'm not saying it was always easier. I had money or doing anything, but you definitely can. And I've, I've, you know, I've been that person and I've seen those person, people that came in the room and they're just like, that person's going to make it work because they really, really want to. They're not just going to complain about things. So, well, uh, Nancy, I think we've come to the end of our time here. Uh, is there anything else you want to add before we go? I do. I have a question for you. Oh my God. What is it? What is it? What is the name of this podcast? So <laughs> Memory serves the name of this podcast is Smoke Em If You Got Em, where your hosts continually forget to identify the name of their podcast. But um, I'm so glad you remember. One of these days, we're going to forget entirely. Oh, oh, the listeners will not. They will come at us. And I hope they do. And listeners, I really hope you tell your friends. We're trying to push this little baby forward. So tell your friends to um, listen and subscribe. And I guess we're supposed to also say like, Go say, go rate us and, and give us a comment over on Apple Podcasts. I think that's what you should also do. We're on Substack. You can listen to it for free. You can pay for it. Um, we've got some cool stuff coming up. And I think the next time, uh, I think the next time we're going to podcast, I think maybe we'll do it when I'm in Portland. When you're maybe. in Portland. Yeah. Exciting. Yeah. All, right. All right, babe. I want to tell one our listeners one more thing. Please. Nancy spit on me during this podcast. Go tell a friend. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You're insecure, don't know what for. You're t-